Well, good morning, Mercy House. I'm Pastor Tommy. Really glad that you guys are joining us here this morning. I I do want to just kind of jump straight into God's Word together. So if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to open up your Bibles to Romans 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles underneath your seat. If you don't own a Bible, there's a table uh, with free Bibles in the back. Please take one. That's our gift to you uh, this morning. So as you're turning there, I I just want to start off this morning by asking a very simple question. And my question is, if you are a Christian, uh, what political party should you be aligned with? I got your attention, huh? All right. If you, here's another one. If you are a Christian, uh, what shows or movies should you not watch? Oh. All right, last one. Should a pastor get a tattoo? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> what, what do you think? So I, I imagine that most of you have some opinions about the questions I just asked, I imagine that some of you might have very strong opinions. Maybe your opinions are so strong that you don't even see them as opinions, but you know what is the true answer to the questions I just asked. Our focus this morning is not going to be about the answers to these questions, but as Paul continues in chapter 14, which is all about disputable matters, so these are areas which, which God has not explicitly commanded us to do something or to not do something, things that are matters of opinion and not doctrine, what we'll get to see this morning is a closer look at how to love people with strong opinions and very strong convictions. It's very similar to the beginning of chapter 14, which we covered last week, but with some differences. We're going to be able to see how to love people whose consciences, uh, as younger, less mature Christians, prevent them from being able to experience the liberty that maybe some of us more mature Christians are able to have in Christ. But whether you're a weak Christian or a stronger Christian, there are things that God calls all of us to do, which is to pray, so let's do that now together. Father, we worship you this morning. In this moment, we acknowledge that you are our God, that you stand above every other thing in our lives. God, we confess that we don't always live like this. We confess that we often elevate other things and even ourselves higher than you. But not right now, God. We surrender in this moment the thrones of our minds and the throne of our hearts to you this morning. We pray that you would take residence in us. We pray that you would captivate our thoughts and our imagination through your word. God, give us a supernatural focus to be able to hear and receive what you have for us this morning. Help us to love one another, God. Help us to yield in our pride. Help us to stoop down to count others as more important than ourselves. God, thank you for doing this for us. We pray that you'd bless this time. God, please bless the words that are coming out of my mouth, and may they be pleasing in your sight. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chapter 14, uh, we're going to start in verse 13. It says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So whenever we see the word therefore, we need to understand how what we're reading right here connects to what just came previously. The verses we're covering this morning cannot be taken out of context from what we covered last week in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. And what Paul brings up in those earlier verses is a a pretty divisive opinion in the church 
in Rome where some were convicted and believed very strongly that Christians, in order to be good and faithful Christians, must abstain from eating meat. And Paul calls these the weaker Christians. Then there are those who believe that, that they have freedom and liberty as Christians to eat anything, and that includes meat. And Paul calls these the strong Christians. And one of the central points to these earlier verses at the beginning of chapter 14 is that there should not be quarreling or fighting over who is right. Why? Because the issue of meat or no meat, and then later on, whether certain days should be special or, or whether or not all days should be special, these all fall under the category of opinions, literally disputable matters in the Greek. They are non-essential. They are morally neutral, things which God has not commanded or prohibited, which means that it is not critical that everyone be on the same page, that we can agree to disagree we actually should do so, and then we should move on to things that are more important. But it's not always that simple. Uh, I think if it were, then we wouldn't have the second half of chapter 14. So where one problem that we talked about uh, in, in this first half of chapter 14 uh, is that usually weaker Christians with very strong opinions about things that don't matter they're not able to see that they are the weaker Christian with strong opinions about things that don't matter. So to them, they just have strong opinions. Perhaps that what they believe is the truth about something that is of the utmost importance, not something that's unimportant. So there is a lack of awareness, a lack of humility and maturity. That is one problem. The other problem, which we're facing this week, is really an even bigger deal, that, that some of the consequences for how we navigate our opinions and our convictions can actually lead to sin. That's a bigger deal. You can be legally innocent, yet morally compromised. Let me say that again. You can be legally innocent, but you can be morally compromised. This is what Paul means in verse 14 when he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is, is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So Paul weighs in here on the whole meat, no meat debate. So remember, the, the crux of this whole argument over why Christians should abstain from eating meat is that somehow that meat has become spiritually tainted. It, it is unclean if it was meat that has been sacrificed to idols or meat that didn't coincide with the strict Old Testament laws surrounding food preparation. But here, Paul reminds the Romans that nothing is unclean in itself, including meat. And Paul is convinced of this in light of the gospel of Jesus. There are, there are likely, uh, a few likely sources of this conviction that Paul has. Here's one that I think is, is most probable. It's, it, it's, it's probably based in Peter's experience in Acts chapter 10. So if you're not familiar uh, with that or you don't remember, Acts chapter 10, Peter is really hungry. Okay? He, he's, he's really, really hungry. Like He starts hallucinating, but it's actually a vision from God. And in this vision, there is a giant white sheet and it is filled with all sorts of animals, all, all kinds of different animals, and it's being lowered from heaven in this vision. And in the vision, God says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter takes this as a bit of a test. He says, no way. 
I'm not going to eat what you've told me my entire life is unclean. But then God says, this is in Acts chapter 10, verse 15 and 16. This should be on your screens. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. Verse 16, this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So we have this moment where God lifts the Old Testament understanding of certain foods that are unclean to reveal that God has now made those, food, the, those foods clean, and that all of the unclean and common foods that include meat are now fair game to eat. I mean, if nothing else, this should help us see that convictions and opinions can change, even the most strictly followed, deeply ingrained ones. And it's not changing because Peter is becoming more like progressive in his faith. It's not changing because Peter is deconstructing his faith and he's figuring out for himself, okay, what is important, what's not important? Like God has always been Peter's God, and this God has directed his affections and his convictions. And that doesn't change in chapter 10 of Acts. God is redirecting his convictions in this case. It's an exciting day for Peter. He's about to taste bacon for the first time in his entire life. So Peter has this vision. And the incredible thing is that it's actually pointing to an even greater revelation than just food, which is, what God, which is that God is now opening the opportunity for the gospel to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, people who were once called unclean, uncommon, but now they are fair game for the gospel. So with this experience, Peter would naturally relay this to the other apostles. Uh, Paul himself receives his calling as an apostle commissioned specifically to go reach unclean Gentiles with the gospel. You see this in Romans 11, verse 13. So, of course, Paul understood that the people, if the people are no longer seen as unclean, then the food which God has used as a metaphor to communicate this to them is also no longer unclean. Hence his point in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Unfortunately, it's not quite that simple. So if you just look at the second half of verse 14, Paul says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. All right, what is Paul talking about here? Like he just said nothing is unclean and then he tacks on, but it is unclean for the person who thinks that it's unclean. I think on the surface, it might look like Paul is making room for some relative truth claims to exist. So what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. You can call something red. I'll call it green. So it is red for you, but for me, it's green. That is not what Paul is doing here. Uh, downtown in Amherst, there is right in front of the town hall, uh, a sign. And if you're pulling out of the town hall parking lot and you want to uh, go back into the center of town, you can't because there is a no left turn sign. Some people are smiling because you know exactly the sign that I'm talking about. If you've been around for a bit, like you know this infamous sign. And I say infamous because no one likes this sign. If you want to go back toward the center of town, which is literally like 30 feet to your left, you can't. You have to take a right. You have to go all the way through the shops behind Bueno and all the way out to the light. Or you have to go the wicked long way around the block the other way. It's the worst sign in Amherst, hands down. So say that I'm sitting there at this spot, okay? And I know that I can't take that left. I know. I, I mean, I've been in this town for a long time. I know I can't take that left, but I'm tempted to. I'm tempted to because it makes so much efficient sense to do so. 
and there's no other cars around me. I'm not going to hurt anybody by taking this left. And I decide in my heart to break the law. And I'm going to take that left. And I mutter under my breath, God, I'm sorry, have mercy, as I take that left. And there's no police. There's no citizen's arrest. Like, I make it through there with no issues. But I'm convicted in my heart. I don't feel too great about it, right? Now, imagine I share this later on with a friend. I confess it to them. And they tell me, Tommy, you know, they removed that sign. Do you know that? Like, everyone in the town also thought it was really silly that there's that sign there, and they got rid of it two weeks ago, so you actually didn't do anything wrong. Now, is that true? Did I really not do anything wrong? I might be legally innocent, but I am morally compromised at that point. So while the police can see my actions, only my actions, the Lord knows my heart. And in my heart, I knew and believed it was wrong to take that left. Yet, despite that conviction, in a moment of sinful rebellion, completely cognizant and aware that I was about to willingly do something that I knew and thought was wrong, I went against my conscience. And for me, in that moment, that was sinful. It was sinful. This is how we are to understand where Paul is coming from. And I said this earlier, that we can be legally innocent, but morally compromised. So legally, biblically, that's where the law of God comes from, from the Bible, we and Paul can make a case for why Christians can eat meat, that it's okay to eat meat. But if someone is convinced and convicted in their hearts that eating meat would be wrong, and if they knowingly acted against that conscience and ate meat, even though it is legally, biblically permissible to do so, they would still be morally compromised. Mercy House, listen to your conscience. That still small voice in your heart, that feeling in your gut, that is a compass for what it means to live as a faithful Christian in this world. This is distinct from the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit can speak through our conscience, but it's not, it's not our conscience. Because our conscience or our gut has been around in us before we became Christians and we received the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's a part of who we are. It's, a, it's one of our mental faculties. This is one of the things, a part of us that has been corrupted by sin and, and can do wrong. God can't be corrupted by sin. He can never do wrong. So there is a difference between the Holy Spirit and our conscience. But your conscience is still really, really important. It is your compass. And when you are a young Christian... Maybe you're still living in a lot of sin, then that compass can be a little bit off. It can be spinning on some days. And it, it was for the younger and weaker Christians in Rome. That's part of the reason why we're having this conversation, why Paul is having this conversation with them. They were getting some false readings on which direction was the right way to go. But as we mature, as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, as, as we are testing to discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect, you see this in Romans 12 too, that compass will further calibrate to Christ and become more accurate in helping us know what God wants from us in any and all situations. So as an aside, if your compass is busted or, or you don't trust the reading that you're getting, if your conscience or your gut is, is more confusing to you than it is helping you, then find a more mature believer. Ask them to point you in the right direction. So Paul says, don't be wise in your own sight, Romans 12, 18. 
It's what the church is for. But here's the reality, which is that when we, the stronger Christians, know what is legally and biblically right, the consequences of not loving our weaker Christian brothers and sisters who might be biblically wrong, we can lead them to be morally compromised. It can lead them to stumble and sin. That's why Paul says in verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So he opens up this whole section with this exhortation, which essentially means don't make life more difficult for your brother or your sister. As they're running their race, don't try to, uh, or, or as they're trying to grow and mature as a Christian, don't act in ways that would make it harder for them to run. When I was younger, uh, we used to play this game as kids. It would usually be at a sleepover, and we would crank the treadmill on like the highest speed setting, and we would like see if we can run on it. Has anyone ever done that? A few of us, okay? Um, and, and, and what would inevitably ha- like happen every single time, someone thought it would be funny to like throw a sleeping bag on the treadmill while someone's running, or like, like a medicine ball onto the treadmill, and you would bite it. Like, there's no way you would not fall on your face. And like whoever was running would fall. Like this was a literal stumbling bo- block that we would throw onto the treadmill for our friends, or our friends. And... That is the image. Like, if our brother or sister has very strong convictions for how they ought to live out their life and their faith, and they're running their race, and we're not able to be sensitive to those convictions, our behavior toward them can be like lobbing medicine balls or sleeping bags under their feet as they are running. How? Why is that so severe? Well, look at these next verses. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So here's what's happening. Someone you know might have the strong conviction that eating meat is sinful, and you know this about them, and, and because you know your Bible, you know that they're wrong about this. And, and you know that we as Christians can eat meat because Paul said as much in these previous verses, and, and you have a solid theology of meat <laughs> in your mind. So when they come over to hang out with you, you decide to fire up your grill. You get some nice 80-20 ground beef, and you season that up. And, and, and you pop it on the grill, and you make for yourself a nice, big, juicy burger, knowing how your brother or your sister feels about this. And maybe what you're trying to show them is, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a mature Christian. Like, I have the freedom to eat meat, and I want you, my friend, to experience the same freedom as me. What you're actually doing is potentially destroying the one whom Christ died. That's verse 15. When, when we're not sensitive to the convictions of our brothers and sisters and, and flaunting our freedom in their face, 
in the place where they are still struggling in their conscience, it is destroying the work of God. Verse 20. These are some harsh words. What is the big deal? What is going on here? Why is it so damaging to our brothers and sisters to eat a burger? According to Paul, it's damaging because it's encouraging our brothers and sisters, if they have a strong conviction, to go against that conviction and violate their conscience. So we are applying pressure on them just to try a little bit of meat. We're saying it doesn't matter how you feel about eating the meat. Just eat it. It's okay to do. But Paul says in Romans 14, verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If we don't have the patience and the sensitivity toward our brothers and sisters to, to let them be convinced in their own minds, we might mean well, but what we're, what, what we're not teaching is Christian liberty. What we're actually teaching is sinful compromise. We're telling them that it's okay to go against your conscience. And here's the problem with that. Their conscience might be biblically wrong in this instance, but what about when it's not? We might have friends that have what we would call some silly convictions, like what music they should listen to, or what movies they should watch or not watch, or what clothes they should wear or not wear. And, and sure, like we want them to be able to experience freedom that we ourselves experience in Christ, but if we encourage them to violate their conscience, even in minor, seemingly insignificant areas, like, like what's playing on the radio, we're helping them be comfortable with compromise. And that, brothers and sisters, will lead to their destruction. This is not just a warning to weaker Christians with, a, with opinions about non-essential things. This is a call and a warning for all Christians. When we violate our conscience, whether that's on issues that seem blatantly sinful or morally insignificant, we're playing a dangerous game with ourselves. We are conditioning ourselves to be comfortable with compromise. And when we are comfortable with compromise, we become spiritually and morally dull. We start becoming desensitized to the leading of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. This is not where you want to be as a Christian. That's why I said earlier, and I'll say it again, listen to your conscience, Mercy House. Those who do not, regardless of what their conscience is speaking to them about, are being a weak Christian, not a strong Christian. So what is your conscience telling you? What are the convictions of your heart? Strong Christians are faithful to those convictions, whether big or small, even when all of their friends try to convince them otherwise, even when the world tries to convince us otherwise, even when our family, our Christian family, tries to convince us otherwise. Because going back to last week's text, at the end of our lives, we will not stand before our friends. We will not stand before our parents. You won't stand before your pastor. This is Romans chapter 14, verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. God cares more about your faithfulness to your convictions than you having a right theology of meat or music or film 
when we violate our consciences and make compromises, or when we encourage our brothers and sisters to violate their consciences and make compromises, we are destroying what God has done in ourselves and in them. What Paul means by this is we are regressing in our spiritual maturity. Christian sanctification, that's the idea of Christian maturity. Christian sanctification is the work that God is doing in us to grow us to become more like Christ. But compromise can lead to sin. It is knowing what we should do, but then not doing it. That's what Paul means when he says earlier in verse 14, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. James says it a little bit more explicitly. James 4, verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Compromise can lead to sin. Sin is a regression in our sanctification. It's moving in the opposite direction of being more like Christ. It doesn't mean that we're not Christians anymore. When we sin, it doesn't mean that we've lost Christ. But you as mature believers need to understand and remember that there are practical consequences in engaging in sin. And some of our sanctification is undone as we dull our consciences while God would want us to sharpen our consciences. And that's part of the destruction that Paul is warning us about. So what is the alternative? What should we do? What mindset should we have instead of quarreling over non-essential things? Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or, and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What we need to remember is that these non-essential things are non-essential. They are non-essential. Look, if you've spent any amount of time in the church, you're going to run into people who have strong opinions about things. And these opinions are, are not just about uh, meat or movies or, or, or music. People have opinions about how things should be done. They have opinions about how things should look. They have opinions about how things should sound. Opinions about what we should spend our time doing or not doing. There will always be differences in opinions about non-essential things. That's a fact about what it means to be a part of a church. But Paul reminds us that church, the kingdom of God, kingdom of God is about more than these non-essential opinions and preferences. This is a reminder to those with very strong opinions and to those who are hearing the strong opinions from others that the most critical thing in church is not what our worship sounds like or what the arrangement of this room looks like, or what our kids' program is, is, is doing on, on a Sunday morning, just practically and logistically, or how our prayer team is facilitated, or what our midweek time looks like. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, and I would add to that, or any non-essential preference or opinion, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If that is true, the most important thing to be on the same page about is verse 18 there. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. We need to remember that the most important thing about church is whether or not God is growing us as a church in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We need to also remember that the most important thing about our brother or sister next to us is, is not their opinions or what they think about things or, or them needing to be corrected. It's whether or not they serve Christ. 
And if they serve Christ, if their ultimate allegiance is to Christ, if they are worshiping Christ, then they are acceptable to God, opinions and all, which means if someone is acceptable to God, we need to be able to receive them as well. We need to be able to approve them as well. So when you hear strong opinions about what should be done, when you hear strong opinions about what things need to look like or or not look like, if they're over non-essential things and you disagree, don't fight about it. Don't fight about it. Sure, vocalize your disagreement. Share the freedom that you might have if someone is asking you, but there are more important things for us to be spending our time on instead of quarreling over non-essential disputable matters. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Jump down to verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul reiterates a point from earlier in chapter 14 when he says to keep your faith between yourself and God. This is not anti-evangelism. He's not saying don't share your faith. So in context, Paul is talking about our convictions and our opinions, and Paul ends this section by reminding us of the personal nature of our personal convictions. Now, I know that this is especially hard for some of us. Some of us have opinions and convictions that we feel so strongly, not just for ourselves, but we believe that those around us should have the same convictions. But I hope that you can humbly hear Paul's words here when he says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. So if someone asks about your convictions, why you vote a certain way, why you refrain from getting tattoos, why you exercise as often as you do, like whatever strong opinions or fiction of, uh, uh, convictions that you have, they ask you, um, you can share that with them, absolutely, but don't judge them for not having the same conviction or opinion. After all, you might be wrong in your opinion. And if your opinion or conviction is the right one, then be patient and bear with your brother or sister until they are able to be fully convinced in their own mind. Because ultimately, persuading people to have the same convictions as you or to lose convictions that they have, that isn't fruitful or helpful because of what we just talked about, but also because you see this in the end of verse 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, when we take a step back, it's such a no-brainer. Uh, like, it, it, it seems so clear and almost so silly that Paul has to have this conversation with them. Look at what he says in verse 15, the middle of 15 there. By what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ died. Jump to verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong. The word wrong there is evil wicked, morally bad. It is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul speaking, uh, is, speaking to the stronger Christian who understands that they can eat meat, and he's saying to them, are you really going to die on this hill? Like, are you really going to cause your brother or your sister to sin? Are you really going to double down so that you could be right over a hamburger? 
which if you eat can destroy the one whom Jesus died? Look, I love a good burger, okay? Don't get me wrong. Throw some bacon on that, put a jalapeno popper in there, some caramelized onions, make it animal style. Like, I, I like burgers, but listen to me. There is no burger on earth that is so delicious. There is no song on earth that is so good. There's no movie or show that is so great. No preference that you have that is so perfect that it's worth having at the cost of your brother or your sister falling into sin and having the work of God destroyed in them. This is what Paul is saying. Paul, who, who has to basically have the same conversation with the church in Corinth, he says this to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse, t- verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is willing to give up meat forever for his brothers and sisters. The question for you is, what would you give up to help your brother or your sister in their walk with God? That's going to be the measure of your love for your brother or your sister. What are you willing to sacrifice so that your brother or your sister in Christ can get more of Christ? For Paul, this was easy. He has so much love for his brothers and sisters. He has an accurate value of their relationship with God and what that is worth on the grand eternal scheme of everything. That he says, I'll never eat meat again if it means that it helps my brothers and my sisters not fall into sin. It's a little absurd, to be honest, but it is a display of Paul's heart and his love for his people. This is the kind of love that we are all called to as Christians. Paul's words are being read to the whole church in Rome, but remember who he's directing these words specifically to. It's not to the weaker Christian. So this is not an appeal to the weaker Christians to just grow up. Hey, weaker Christian, can you just mature already? Can you hurry up and just figure it out? No. Paul is speaking to the stronger Christian, to the more mature ones, and his appeal is this. If there is a head-on conflict over non-essential things, then it is the stronger, more mature Christian who is called to yield to the younger Christian. This is upside down. Paul is calling the church in Rome to exercise a humility and a meekness that is unheard of in the world around them. And it's unheard of in the world around us today. Seniority rules. That was true then. It's true now, like culturally, those who have greater age, greater credentials, greater experience, they get more respect, kind of like by default. They're the ones that we typically yield to. Now, I'm not saying that that's evil or wrong, but what God has demonstrated is upside down from what we have largely experienced to be true. He's saying that those who are greater in matters of preference and non-essential things are to yield to the weaker, This is hard for many of us. Many of us are not by nature those who yield. We like when others yield to us. Some of us love it when others yield to us. We want to be great so others can respect us, that others can listen to us, that others can seek us out and ask us for our thoughts and our opinions on things. It was no different in Jesus' day for his disciples. In Luke chapter 9, verse 46, says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. 
But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. What Jesus was teaching is that being great was not about how to um, accumulate amounts of people that would yield to us. It wasn't about how many people would yield to us. It's quite the opposite, that like a child who yields to everyone else around them, those who are great in Christ are those who themselves yield and serve others. That is what biblical greatness is, not having lots of social prestige or having lots of social capital that you can spend, but stooping down to love and to serve and giving up anything for the good of others. Another way that Paul says this, and this is our last scripture for the day, and we'll finish out. Verse 3 in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul was willing to give up meat for the rest of his life for the sake of his brothers and sisters, but Jesus was willing to give up all of himself for the sake of his brothers and sisters. Paul says here to the Philippians that Jesus, verse 7 there, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus gave up everything. He gave up things in heaven that we don't even know about. And while we're here talking about giving up burgers and movies and music for each other, Jesus gave up his home in heaven where I'm sure he was perfectly comfortable to come down in the severely limiting form of a human And Paul says he emptied himself in this process. He didn't hold anything back for himself. He didn't reserve a part of himself that he wasn't willing to give up. And then, as if that wasn't enough, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, and saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. This is the basis for why we as Christians ought to live selflessly and to love one another sacrificially. Paul says in Philippians 2 there, to count others more significant than ourselves, especially the weaker brothers and sisters around us. We don't do this in order to get right with God. We don't do this in order to become a Christian or to stay a Christian. We do this because Jesus did this for us. He is the stronger Christian who gave up everything for us, the weaker Christian, so that we could have him. That's what happened on the cross. That's what we celebrate during communion. Jesus didn't need to yield to us. He didn't need to stoop down into creation, but he humbly did. And it wasn't because 
He wanted to be sensitive toward us so that we wouldn't stumble in sin. Jesus did it so that he would obliterate the stumbling block of sin altogether. So if you're not a Christian, this is what Christ has done for you. The great God of the universe has yielded, has stooped down, has humbled himself, and died for you so that your sin would no longer keep you from him. If we're Christians, this is all of our stories. God didn't stoop down and die for us while we were weak so that we could just continue to live in the ways that we did, but in order to sanctify us, to mature us, to bring us into what it looks like to become a strong Christian. So as we take communion this morning, lay down your opinions at his feet Yes, you can honor God by staying true to your convictions. No, I don't want you to violate your conscience. But for some of us, our opinions and our convictions consume us, and it makes it impossible for us to love our brothers and sisters. So if that is you this morning, take this opportunity to lay it down at the foot of the cross. And if those convictions and opinions are ones that God wants you to have, then you will pick those back up as you leave here. If you're struggling this morning because of other people in your life who have really strong opinions and you're having a hard time loving them because they won't just stop talking about what they think is right and true and how you should change, lay those down at the foot of the cross as well. Empty yourself before the Lord and may he give you a moment of sobriety, clarity, to remember that the kingdom of God is about more than opinions and convictions, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So then, let us pursue all together what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great work that you are doing in the lives of those here today. I can't see it all. Uh, I confess I wish I saw more of it, to be honest. But we walk by faith and not by sight. We know that you are at work because your word never returns void, and you've promised to bring into completion what you've begun in those whom you've called to yourself. God, we confess that we struggle with strong opinions sometimes. And God, we acknowledge that we don't always know what opinions are about important things and which ones are about non-essential things. So help us by your spirit to test and to discern what is your will and what is good and what is perfect. We pray that you would continue to mature us and that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. Thank you for giving up everything for us. We thank you that you emptied yourself for us. Thank you that you knelt down, the great king stooping down as the ultimate gesture of humility and meekness so that we could be washed clean of our sin and our guilt and transformed into righteous sons and daughters of God. Help us to love our brothers and sisters well, God. Help us to yield like you yield. Help us to be humble like you are humble. Help us to be meek like you are meek. Help us to be thankful for what is most important in our brothers and sisters, that they serve you, that they worship you. God, help us to have strong opinions about the things that you have strong opinions about and let everything else fall by the wayside. God, we love you, and we thank you for your word, for all the ways that it has been profitable in teaching us and reproving us and correcting us and training us and equipping us this morning. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.